Hello, listeners. Hope you have enjoyed Fringe Benefits Edinburgh or are currently enjoying it. A big thank you for all the reviews and messages. It truly means a lot. If you are enjoying the show or have enjoyed the show and you want to support us, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can give us a five-star review. You can please tell a friend, tell a coworker, tell your grandma, tell your mom, tell someone, or you can buy me a coffee, which I will use to buy a tea by going to fringebenefitspod.com. That's fringebenefitspod.com. And there is a link to donate. So our story has concluded, but today is a bonus episode. I hadn't planned on doing these, but in interviewing so many artists and producers about the fringe, the conversations often spilled over to other fringe-related topics. Many of these folks had such good nuggets of wisdom and insight that it killed me when I had to leave it on the edit floor or rather computer hard drive. Like my conversation with Sarah Vigis. You'll remember Sarah from episode one when she spoke about the dreams and possibilities of the fringe. And in episode five, we dove deeper into her and Nouveau Riche's experiences at the fringe and Nouveau Riche's partnership with the Fringe Society. But Sarah and I ended up speaking about so much more than just fringe. As you'll hear in this episode, before we really got to the fringe, we spoke a lot about theater, just theater in general, how Nouveau Riche makes it more accessible for their community and how it's actually easier than you would think. We also talked about how to make theater more accessible to more audiences. Some of this interview you will have heard before in episode five and a bit in episode one, but a lot of it will be brand new to you. So if you are someone who likes talking about theater, hearing about theater, hearing how theater is made, or interested in making it more accessible, then this is a conversation for you. More bonus episodes will be coming out, including extended advice from those we heard from in episode six and others. In the meantime, make sure you are following the podcast so you know when those bonus episodes come out. And as a reminder, this was recorded in September 2023. So when you hear us refer to last year, we mean 2022. With all that said, enjoy my conversation with Sarah Vigis. I'm Sarah Vigis. I'm the senior producer at Nouveau Riche and the creative producer at Sarah Vigis Productions. And what is Nouveau Riche? Uh, so Nouveau Riche is a production company that's been running for the last seven, eight years, I want to say. And we focus on bringing black and global majority stories to stage, stories that haven't been told before and that depart from the traditional Western ways of storytelling. We support a lot of black and global majority artists, most of them like putting their first show on stage or writing their first show. And I guess we sit in that middle ground of growing and up upscaling what might be known as community theatre or subsidised theatre even into like commercial landscapes. Our last show for Black Boys was hugely successful starting at New Diorama Theatre in a small 80 seat space and then sold out there, subsequently transferred to the Royal Court, sold out there and then transferred to West End's Apollo and sold out there. And I think obviously it's great to sell out these brilliant venues but I think like at the core of our work is bringing our audiences to the theatre and making sure that they feel safe and heard and welcomed and like it's their space so we turn any space we're in into our space so that our communities feel welcome. How do you do that? So the best example the one I like the most maybe we'll say <laughs> is at NDT they allowed us to get K-Refi in 
who does this project called the Smiling Boys Project. And he goes into these school, like state schools who have uh, a majority black boys and um, takes them through this like workshop of it's all surrounded it all surrounds happiness and what makes you smile but like he uses photography because that's his medium so he gives them a camera and he goes like just take pictures of things that make you happy and then the whole thing ends with this exhibition of all the boys and he takes pictures of them smiling so he very kindly lent us some of those photos and we hung them up all around the theater we had a a party night where we had like a DJ come in and it's like by a standard like all nouveau shows whenever we have a press night or a party night we get a DJ in and it's always like the best party we had like the theatre got in like Ray and Nephew for audiences because it's like a common drink and a lot of theatres don't have Ray and Nephew but it's like just a thing where like you recognise it and it's oh cool that's part of my culture what else did we do? We so we allowed I think this is like possibly something that's like outside of just the black or green majority culture. But there was an announcement at the end that allowed people to just sit in the theatre for however long. We said you can sit in the theatre for however long you want. But obviously, if it came to an hour or something like that. We, but yeah, we, we made that like a quiet space and we let people sit in there. We created like a lot of um, self-care guides, which had like black male therapists specifically, some free, some paid. And those were shared around and we had like really clear trigger warnings for the performance because yeah there's yes there's suicide in the title but also just to people know there is suicide mentioned in the show and so much more than that we tried to make sure that anything that could be a trigger was covered in that and I strongly believe that content warnings and trigger warnings are really important moving forward when we went to the west end we we had a massive speaker in the foyer playing like afrobeat and drill and all of that sort of music that you don't normally hear in a theatre space, but like it suited the show. Our audiences loved it. We were also like a lot more lax with starting times because I guess that that audience is used to like probably going to the cinema and not really the theatres. So like they, they, a lot of them turned up at half seven and also brown time is a thing. So we had like cues and cues at 7.30, 7.45. Like sometimes the show started at eight, which we were like, yeah, we're expecting. And there was a lot of conversations about, okay, do we put an earlier time? But then we're like, no, we're lying to our audience. Like we put 7.30 and expect to start later and that's fine. And then we had some Muslim kids. So it was at the Apollo during Ramadan earlier this year. And we had Muslim kids who really wanted to come like the school group, but they they would have had to break fast pretty much. Maybe I think like 7.40 or something like that. Basically as the show went up, which obviously is impossible because theatres have really strict, you can't bring food in. You can't eat any food apart from food, but we organized during the interval. Uh, I think it was from Five Guys or like Wingstop or something like that. Takeaways to come for them. So we had all tables out and then it was like boxes and boxes of Wingstop for the kids during the interval. And then at the top of the show, we like they were allowed to bring like dates in and some water so they could break fast whenever they needed with the date and some water and then have like proper dinner and um, that. And then the theatre has like these rooms that they normally use for VIPs, but we blocked it off for them. So if anybody wanted to go and pray during the interval, they could go and do that there. Yeah, that's amazing. So I'm hearing this and you all are are doing really making theatre as accessible to your community as possible. And it really makes me wonder about how to transfer that to, because you're part of that community. So how do you transfer that to other theaters 
how can other theaters, no matter whether they're on the West End or they're a fringe theater, because sometimes you don't, you know, you don't have a big budget to do some of those things. You may not have a side room for people to pray. So what do you think theaters, whether they be on the West End or like a small fringe theater, what could they do to make it more accessible and more welcoming environment? So I think I think some theaters have started to just be like aware of their front of house staff. And if you do have a show that is black and global majority led, making sure that you don't have just white front of house staff. And there's like somebody there who represents the audiences coming in. Other theatres have done things like putting up pictures of previous shows that are black and globe majority led. And that just means that when you walk in, you see yourself, like you just see yourself reflected in that immediately before even the show starts. And it's a small thing. Yes, it costs a little bit of money, but at the end of the day, it's not a massive thing to do. And I think it makes a world of difference. I'm like a theatre person, a theatre goer. So I feel very at home in theatres, despite how other audiences might treat me. But that said, like, I really do clock when there are other South Asian or brown or black front of house staff. And I normally go to them, like, if I need anything, I would choose going to them over some, especially if it was like to do with trigger warnings or like something a little bit more sensitive. And it was a black led show or a brown led show, like, I probably end up gravitating to them. And I, it's just a, it's a comfort thing. Like you gravitate to your community. So I think having that gives gives audiences just like a small sense of security that mean that they go okay cool I've, I've spotted that I know um I think having things really clearly labeled because like sometimes you don't want to go and be like oh where's the toilet where's the theater so going into the national is really scary because there's three theaters and you don't know where you're going but like they do have things quite clearly labeled but having making sure that like where your toilets are are clearly labeled and like where the bar is and where the theater is and is there readmission. That's a massive thing that a lot of places don't really advertise openly. And the biggest one is, so we had loads of people came to our shows and being like, oh, what food do you have? Because any, it's a thing of our culture. I think especially South Asian culture, like food is the crux of our culture so when it, wherever you go as a South Asian if you're going to like your auntie's house for like tea or whatever you expect food so especially when we have proud people and I can so see them like eyeing up those crisps and like popcorn and being like why don't you have any proper food so then people would come at 7 20 being like oh yeah so w- what food do you have oh popcorn oh cool I'm gonna go get some food and come back and I'm like uh, she starts in five minutes but like just saying that like, this is the food we have and making sure that's really clearly advertised on the website so if people want to get dinner they know to do that I think the biggest thing and I've been having this discussion with loads of colleagues and friends in various circles I sit in both worlds like the subsidizing commercial world and I'm trying to build this middle world of where subsidies and commercial come together and what that looks like because community theatre is a massive part of my practice but so I've been speaking to people over both worlds of there's all these rules that we have when we go to the theatre and you just don't know them if you don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like any event, so like going to the football, there's a set of rules and expectations. Going to a museum, going to a concert like or a festival, 
there is like a ritual to all of these events that you follow. There's possibly there's a way to dress or not like a right or wrong way to dress, but a way that most people will be dressed. And there's a way of an order of things that might happen and the things that might be available and the things that you are allowed to bring in or not bring in. And I think it's making that clear and really transparent that, okay, cool, there might be songs in this, but don't sing along or there'll be a time for you to sing along if that's the rule. I don't really know where I stand on the like that whole issue that happened in Manchester. But if it's that Mamma Mia, the expectation is you don't sing along while the show is going on, but then at the end they get all the audience up and do three or four other songs. So you get your fill. And most big like jukebox musicals do that. So it's just making it clear that, hey, there will be a time for you to sing along. Don't sing along during the show. Or there's going to be some audience interaction. Be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. And things like, please put your, like, put your phones on silent and not being on your phone because the light disturbs actors and other audience members. Food is a massive thing. Like, and all, all the, all theatres have different rules. So just standardising one thing of, okay, fine, you, you're not allowed to bring any cooked food into a theatre or we will keep it at box office. Some theatres keep it at box office. Mm. Some don't. It's, that's just gone to waste now. And that's really sad. Yeah. And then it would just make life easier. I think there was a lot of discussion when we had for Black Boys on at the West End. I did like a little video of a route from Piccadilly Circus station to the theatre. Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh, should we do a video of what to expect? Walking into the theatre and who you might see and if you need to go pick up your ticket or if you want to buy a programme or where the toilets are, etc. What is behind the bar? And we had all these fun cocktails and mocktails and stuff with like rum punches coconut punches I don't know but like laying that out really clearly and I think there are like different strains different types of theatre people like some are very like old schoolers you must come dressed in a certain way and you must be quiet throughout the whole show and you cannot leave and you cannot re-enter and you must not be on your phone whatsoever and you must not whisper there's that school of thought but then there is also like this middle ground that I've I was very much oh my god do not use your phone in the theater and then I was dog sitting and the whole time I was like I just want to see if there's any messages like I literally just want to go like that and if you've got kids or you're a carer or your dog you've got a dog and something you just want to obviously if you're going to pick up a phone call don't but (laughs) if it's something small and quiet is that okay yeah Um, and then whispering to your mate, or, oh, this really annoyed me. I was seeing dear, no, what was I seeing? Dear England at the National. And I wanted to go to the, I had gone to the toilet before the show. Still needed to go to the toilet just like halfway through the first act. Waited until the transition. I was like so quiet, like bent down, etc. And some man still had the audacity to be like, oh, really? Now? Really? And I was like, I'm allowed to leave. Yeah. Also, you have bodily functions. Like, what if you were a pregnant woman? Sorry, there is, like, no stopping that. Yeah. Also, like, it just doesn't... I think this is where, like, having some sort of clarity of what these rituals are and just making them clear to audiences, whether you have been to the theatre since you were born or whether you're a new theatre-goer, if it's super clear, then you know you're... Like, even as someone who has, I don't know, spent majority of my life in theatres, empty theatres, full theatres, tech, towards everything I still felt so uncomfortable it made me feel a certain way and it spoilt my experience and it's it made me feel excluded 
really and truly. And I'm like, if there was like the front of house staff were lovely. They were like, oh, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I just really need a wee. And then they showed me where I could go back and stand until the interval and all of that kind of stuff. It's a very normal thing to need to go to the toilet. People do it in cinema all the time and it's so fine. Mm -hmm. Or it's a very normal thing to, I don't know, be triggered by something and want to leave. Like you can't, you don't have to be glued to your seat. And I think that's fine. And I think as theatre gets more bold and is taking more risks, like you look at the Black Boys, which has loads of potential trigger points and you look at, oh my God, a little life. You can't be shitty to people if they want to leave because you don't know what they're going through and whether they're having a real visceral reaction to the stuff on stage and theatre should be bold and risky but yes we have a duty of care to our audience at the same time yeah and a couple of things you touched on upon I think also like coming back from COVID people just forgot what it's like and and frankly I think we need to make spaces theatre will die if we don't expand we need to welcome more audiences are more diverse the population's more diverse and these are audiences that have not been in the theatre before and think about it no matter when your first time you're in the theater, that was your first time. It could have been when you were 10. It could have been when you were five. It could have been when you were 25. It could have been when you were 55. And hopefully you had someone with you to show you, but maybe you don't. Maybe no one else in your world likes going to the theater. So, yeah. and to me, some of the things you're saying actually aren't that expensive. Having a drink, like changing a drink, changing a mixer, that's easy. Having music, easy. Um, yeah, that was nothing. Yeah, like some of these things, it, it's not until I think you need people to be like, oh, yeah, no, this is how you do it. And it's actually really easy. You're like, oh, yeah, it, it is really easy. Yeah. It, I guess if you're like a bigger organization, potentially this is easier. But as standard, you should make sure that your staff are diverse and you're meeting that like reflection of society mm-hmm. within your staff. So then let them know that, hey, if there's a South Asian and you've got the P word by Wally Ducta coming in, tell your South Asian staff because they'd probably want to be front of house for it. Like, I know when I used to work front of house, like this is like years and years ago, if there was any South Asian show coming in or any show that was global majority just wasn't white, I was like, yes, I want to see it. And I want to see my people come to the theatre. Granted, they didn't. But still, I was like, yes, I'm so happy to work front of house for, you know, for this show. Oh, prices. Like, prices, yes, is a bit more of a tricky one and I think there is this I guess thinking that global majority audiences can't afford expensive tickets which we can there there are different classes in our communities and we can afford if we want like some of us can some of us can't so having that diverse range of prices just means that you are hitting people at different different classes you have discounts available for those who want it and need it and you have more expensive ticket prices that then balance out that discount it's a much more in-depth conversation especially if you're looking at like commercial theater because your price point is very important Mm -hmm. but I think having theater tickets for 250 300 pounds is ridiculous I don't think it needs to cost that much and if you want to fine by all means go ahead but you are alienating a whole community out there who are the future of theatre. Because let's face it, a lot of, especially commercial theatre, a lot of the theatre goers are quite old. Mm -hmm. And someone very wise once told me that if we don't change things very quickly, they are literally going to die off 
and there's not going to be a new generation to replace them and theatre's going to be really dire. So I think like keeping in mind that, yes, maybe it's a little bit tougher to make ends meet, especially with the cost of living crisis. You need to have those pricier uh, like price points. But what we did then for Black Boys is we had a number of tickets like in stores, not at the back, in stores that we sold for zero to 20 pounds or 20, zero to 25 pounds. And we didn't advertise them publicly. We went to like our communities and our connections, like school groups and community centers, youth centers, all of those kind of like organizations where we knew we'd be reaching working class people, young working class, globe majority children to like teens who might not even know the show was on, probably get turned away by the ticket price. We have never been to the theater and we offered them, we literally said like how much can you afford? With school programs, sometimes they have theatre budgets. Not all schools do. So we said, do you have a theatre budget? If so, like we'd happily give you tickets at £15, £20. Or if you don't have a budget and you still want to bring people, we gave tickets for free. And we call them like community holds. And we had like almost 3,000, I think, throughout the whole run. And they got snapped up. Like they were, the demand for them was there. And I wouldn't say they were like, misused I think they went to the right people because that was like a really important thing for the production that like yes we go to the west end yes we're unlocking something massive but we are holding true to our beliefs and our values yeah Hamilton in New York does that they hold a certain amount that are I I know in the beginning there was some that were free but then there was some that were like five dollars or ten dollars yeah, yeah. it's like ridiculous I mean, it's not ridiculous. It's cheap. That's great. So let's let's move on. Let's move on to the fringe because as we yes. talk about, I feel like I could talk to you about this. Like, let's just fix <laughs> let's just fix theater uh, in in the UK. Um, okay. So uh, so first of all, if if no one had ever heard of the fringe or been to the fringe, how would you describe it? So it is probably like the biggest theater festival. I want to say in Europe, that could be my lack of wider Europe knowledge. I think it is the biggest international theatre festival in Europe um, or potentially the world. I don't know, but it's huge. There is a venue on every corner that will have something for some, for everyone from a newborn baby to a 90 year old person. <laughs> There's literally something for everyone because I guess it's not just a theatre festival. It's like comedy and music and art and like live art performance. And it is, at least the way it was maybe sold to me at uni is it's a rite of passage for any theatre goer or artist to go to the fringe at least once in your life and take a show up there, right? So you feel like it's something that you have to, it feels like an achievement and a goal to hit. It's like they go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, West End show, international show, like those are the boxes to tick, at least maybe for a producer, I don't know, other people have different boxes. But that's how it was sold to me at uni. Great. It's the largest arts festival in the world, if that means. Oh, yeah. Okay. How did you, going back a little bit, this wasn't actually on my list, but how did you become a producer? Why did you want to be a producer? I fell into it quite accidentally. So I did acting and community theatre at East 15, 
and was a terrible actor. Constantly was told that, which I was like, at the time it was horrible. But now I'm like, actually, that was useful. We had to do placements in between second year and third year. And I ended up, I just so happened to go to Grey Eye, which is one of my favorite companies. And I just so happened to be assisting their wonderful producer, Kate Baden, who is incredible. She's now at the Lyric Hammersmith. And she really trusted me and was like, oh yeah, go and book accommodation. And they had some international artists coming in for an R&D and they were all, they were disabled and deaf artists. So they tasked me with a lot of admin-y bits, but like quite complex admin-y bits. And I think she was like, you're quite good at this. I think you should do this. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And she was very kind with her time on talking me through what producing is and what she does. And I was an access, another hand or an access support worker in the room with them. And then I was like, okay, cool. I really like this producing thing. And I think that's where I want to be. I was always someone at school who I was like, I don't know. I went to a theatre specific school. So I was like, I don't know where I want to specialise into. Like I was in the tech club and I like directed a piece and I did set design for a show and loved making things and I loved doing all the technical bits and all the creative bits and I did a bit of acting and facilitation and I was like I don't really know what I want to do when producing you have to be able to talk the talk with all of those things and I'm no stranger to a lighting rig and have as a producer rigged lights yeah and I think like I'm a massive problem solver so it fits very naturally into my personality it doesn't feel it does feel like work sometimes but it is really enjoyable. Great. So let's talk a little bit about Nouveau Riche. How did Nouveau Riche come about? Ryan Kelly Cameron, our artistic director, this was maybe like seven, seven years ago. He was like, there's no space for me, essentially my friends, my people, to make work. And I'm not seeing our work on stages. Like there was a real lack of diversity. So he started off this company because other people weren't giving him jobs. Other people weren't giving him like a chance and he was like, okay, cool. If, if I can't get a seat at their table, let me just create my own. So that's how Nouvelle started. It also started because we applied. I say we, I wasn't actually part of the company then. I was probably like a teenager. But they created the company it more, like as a necessity for that, but also because there's this thing called the Untapped Award that New Diorama Theatre run. I've been running for a really long time. And they were going to apply for that with Queens of Sheba to go up to Edinburgh. And as part of that, you there's one section that's, if you have a company name, please put it here. And the way NDT works is like they support companies and like collectives. So that was born from, oh, cool, we need a company, but also this makes sense to do because no one else is allowing us in to their company. So let's create our own. And it was essentially like him and his group, his friends. And then they got the Untapped Award, went up to Edinburgh, developed Queens of Sheba. It did really well. And we have, apart from the COVID years, we've been up to Edinburgh every year since. And why do you go up to Edinburgh every year? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think we are one of the only like black and brown led companies that have been up as often as we have. And I guess the first couple of years was untapped got funding okay cool let's go and then when I joined Payne's Plow got in touch with us and were like oh hey they knew we had this show called casting and they were like we'd love for it to come to roundabout and then tour and they were like we'll give you a bit of funding a bit of support we applied for an ace we got it and it was like 
okay, cool. Now we have to do it. it was That was my first Edinburgh. It was last year, right? Yes, that was last year. That was my first physical Edinburgh. Um, or like in person. Um, and we went up and I vowed that I would never be back again. Why? Uh, why? Why would you never want to go back again? It was a lot. It was really stressful. Um, it wasn't easy. It wasn't just not easy on me, but it wasn't easy on my cast and my team. How so? And I, um, there was a lot of racism, a lot of microaggressions, a real lack of like our people up there and our communities up there. Like someone was telling me this year that as a black man, he was like, I had to jump in a in an Uber and drove about 45 minutes to an hour outside of Edinburgh to get his hair done while he was there because he was there for the whole month and it's things like that like there isn't a hair shop in sight there isn't an like an off license that has any of our spices or food or people and there Edinburgh is a very white city so like you get there and that's the first thing that you see and then there's like this general annoyance that the locals have to the fest towards the festival which I get because we're loud and come for a whole month and set up camp in their city. So fair enough. But still, they know that you're an artist because you go around for all your passes and stuff. And you as it is get a weird look. And then being brown, that obviously gets taken in a certain type of way. And you just don't see any other South Asians around. You don't see any other black people around. And it's, it's, it's weird. Yeah. Um, especially if you're from London. it's a real shock to the system because you're like and because Edinburgh is a big city I've been to Manchester it's quite diverse been to Liverpool and it's quite diverse Bristol diverse so I really didn't expect it to be as white as it was and that was hard so you talked about so when you say your experience of microaggressions and racism is this from just residents was this from audiences was this from workers like at your venues is this all the above where where were these coming from they're like it was down to a look on the street and that could have been because we're artists or it could have been that we were five people of colour all walking together. Don't know. But when you are brown and you get those looks because you're brown, you automatically assume. Uh, to a member of staff from another venue who invited the cast onto his show, said to them very casually, oh yeah, I can refer to you as coloured, right? That's fine. Coloured is an okay term. That's the term I've grown up using. He was quite old. That was maybe the level of it. And then the spiral from there was, who do we go to? This is a serious problem. I wouldn't consider that a microaggression. I would consider that racism. So it's like there was no proper system to report that to. He still came back the following year. He was there last this summer gone. And we I was in London and like when my cast told me this, I was at a loss of what to offer them. Mm. I was like, listen, I can only offer you my my listening year. And I was really like, I don't know where to go from this. I don't know what the procedure is or like how to take this further. So I was like, how would you like this taken forward? What is the ideal for you? And then they all were like we'd really like for it to go further up and like for people to be told about this so I did the necessary like telling the venue that he was at and then telling uh, our venue and we obviously wrote a letter to the state a call to action that the stage then published and I guess our response to that was or like 
fringe society approached us being like hey would you come on board and be like consultants for us anti-racism consultants and that's a partnership that we've started and it's a hefty burden to carry and no one company should carry it but and I don't know if we're even like the best company to do this but at the meantime we are doing it Mm -hmm. and it was really hard emotionally to because I was obviously chatting to people a lot about their experience a lot of growing majority people about their experiences and it was hard because I had people being like I had four people in my show yesterday or someone said that they went to one of the fringe events and there was like no one of color there and no one was interested in talking to him or hearing what he had to say or someone was like I had no reviewers in it, even though I've invited people and if you put aside whether the art is good or not right and like even things that get one star reviews, two star reviews, like they get audiences in. So yeah, it was like really an emotional toll to obviously I was like producing my own shows and supporting the untapped shows and then also doing this. But I think it's really important. Currently I am doing like feedback sessions with people, like mainly on Zoom or a phone call and like just taking loads of notes. I've got an idea of a plan of action for next year that I'm hoping we can put in place. Small things, like nothing massive. I think there's like a structural thing that needs to change, which we have no control over. But if we can put little things in place, then I'm all for it. So a couple of things there. So what would you have to say to this person who's like, I'm a white person and I've had no reviewers in and I've invited them. What what makes you any different? I think it maybe isn't that that in isolation. It's that there are no, let's say no. I think there were a few more this year. But there are very few reviewers of color like the majority reviewers as it is in the data industry but even fewer that go up to fringe because of the costs and also because there aren't that many shows with people of color to review there are there's I think there was a lot more this year than there was last year and it grows but still to their time is probably spent better off being in London so that could be a factor that there I as a person of color I'm I go and see all the Globe Majority shows, or like at least I try to, and I prioritize those. And I imagine most people of the Globe Majority would want to see shows from their culture. So that could be a reason. It just could be a reason of non-Globe Majority reviewers thinking, oh, maybe I won't get it, or maybe I'm not the right person to review it, so I'm not going to go. Yeah, I think Fringe is really difficult, that it is difficult to, it's tough to be like, oh, the reason is because I'm a person of color. But when you are POC, that's how it feels. And there's no disregarding that. It feels like it's because of the color of your skin. Because you can't even say that, oh, no, I just made a bad show. Because the reviewers haven't come in to review it, to know whether it's a hit or a miss. Um, And there were some good shows that I saw that had three people in the audience. How does having a predominantly, potentially all-white audience, how does that affect a global majority and Black theater maker? Um, How does it affect the show that you put on and the show that you create and how it's received? I can speak like personally. I think I don't go and see shows that are all white led, like all. So it's hard to know because all of the backstage roles normally you they're not as prominent. They're not what's it called advertised. But if I see a cast announcement and all of the cast are white, I probably won't go see the show quite frankly I and I it riles me up because I'm like 
it's 2023. Come on, you should be doing better. It takes away jobs from our community. At least if you have to put a number on it, do that so that you're holding yourself accountable. If you're saying like 20% of my team, whatever, that shouldn't be the case. You shouldn't have to like measure it. It should be something that happens naturally. But if it doesn't, then be aware of it. Be aware of it during casting. Be aware of it during hiring. I don't want to see creative teams that are all white and then have the excuse of, oh, we tried. There just aren't any. You look at the the Black British Theatre Awards, you look at the Asian Media Awards, we're there. And if you are struggling to find people, go and look at the list of nominees under that category. There you go. There is literally an organisation called Backstage Niche, which has loads of people of colour working in backstage jobs. They are there. We are here and we want work. So that's one way it affects us. Also, it's just, we don't see ourselves represented on stage then or in backstage roles. I hadn't seen a POC producer until I, I don't know, until a couple of years ago. So I never thought also producers aren't very advertised. So I didn't even know it was like a viable career. But even with acting, like time and time again, I was told like, oh, you better be a better singer because and a dancer. Like, well, I can dance, but I can't sing. You better get your singing skills up because the only show you'll be in is Miss Saigon. Miss Saigon is, is East Asian. I shouldn't be in that show. Oh, I remember this is when I was quite young. I must have been like 10 or 11. And I was like at a Saturday drama class or something like that. And some one of the teachers was like, oh, you know what? It'd be perfect if they made Aladdin the musical on stage, then you could be in it. And I was like, what about Shakespeare? Can I not be in it? Is that <laughs> Literally not anything else. Yeah, it, it goes like leaps and bounds in like making other POC young people, allowing other POC young people to see themselves on stage. and. I shouldn't, as let, let's say I was a teenager in this day and age, I'm still looking at, God forbid, Book of Mormon, which we can sit here for a whole hour unpacking that. Hamilton, Lion King, Aladdin now. Yes, Miss Saigon. But I'm still looking to those shows to be like, oh, these are the shows that I'm most likely to get cast in when it should be the case of I can go for anything and everything. Yeah. Literally making up worlds. So, yeah, like you look at uh, everybody's talking about Jamie. And when Leighton was cast, I remember being so, and I've told him this story and he absolutely loves it. I remember being like so overjoyed in drama school when I saw that it was like, because it's, a, it's based on a white man. The story doesn't have much to do with race. It has to do with queerness and class. And I saw it. With a, I, the, I saw, I think, the original Jamie on stage. And then I saw this casting and I was like, oh my God, this is like a massive turning point in our industry. Because if he is, if Jamie is a black character, Jamie's like mum and dad have to be black characters, their understudies have to be black, sorry, black actors. And that means that you are automatically bringing a whole bunch of diversity and giving people, giving global majority people roles that they might not have seen themselves in previously. And now they can. And I remember having a massive argument with a white man in class because he was like, no, but it's, it's based on a real person and the real person is white. So that's not OK. And I like, like, no, you're, you're wrong. wrong. Literally, I was like, no, you're wrong. Yeah, it was a huge turning point for oh, me. Yeah. How, how in regards to audiences, do you think there's a difference? This may be apples to oranges because for your shows, you definitely make it a, a, like a space for the community. And so you make it, it's like a bat signal out, come out, this is safe for you. 
but I'm wondering how your shows are received when you have like either an audience of your community or at least 50-50 versus an audience of predominantly white. Um, so like, yeah. how do you think your shows are received in those two scenarios? Yeah, yeah. When we, from the time I've been working at Nouveau Riche for the last two years now, the first show I ever saw of Nouveau Riche's was Queen's of Sheba at Soho Theatre. And that was also the first time that I was sat in, an, in a theatre in an audience and I was not the minority. It was full of black and majority people. There were South Asian people and it was like visceral. I, rem I can remember being so emotional after because I was like, People are reacting to this, like they're loud and they're cheering and they're like responding and something in them has come alive seeing this show. Um, and then like just the buzz afterwards and the energy was, it was so different to any, anything I've ever seen. And yeah, there's a little bit of audience interaction in that show, not massively, but there's cheering and like loud laughter and just like the, it's like the audience having conversation with the cast rather than just being, no, just what's the word? Just sitting there, listening and spectators. Spectators, spectators. yeah, yeah, yeah. So guys, I think it's Augusta Boal whose audiences shouldn't be spectators; they should be spectators, which is a very wanky term. But they were quite often. The director says the audience is the fifth queen. There's four actors on stage, and it they are like they really are, and they love it, and. I think there's just this immense joy of seeing yourself on stage and your stories and your truth laid out on stage and seeing that like other people are like they're reacting in the same way to you, meaning they feel this and you're, you don't feel alone. You feel part of a, a community of people. And I think there's nothing quite like that versus when obviously we take shows to Edinburgh, it's a majority white community and it is quiet yeah there's still like laughter and clapping and that kind of stuff like people still enjoy the show they come away enjoying it but there isn't that like pure joyous visceral response or just an emotional response that like our audiences really feel and aren't afraid to show I think white audiences in our shows are spectators so going yeah. back a little bit, you mentioned how a lot of Black and global majority critics can't go to Fringe because of the cost or various reasons, or there's just not a lot of shows. Whereas on the other hand, when I talk to people, they're like, why do you do Fringe? And a lot of people say it's because, as you already said, it's a rite of passage. It's a way to get exposure. And one of those exposures, critics. But I'm sitting here wondering, is Fringe... Like, it just doesn't seem equitable when you're thinking about a show about and with Black and global majority characters and actors. And that's a, if that's a company that's trying to get exposure, I guess I'm just saying it just doesn't seem like, is Fringe the best place for them to go? Yeah, I... And this isn't me saying, don't put a fringe I don't yeah. want to exasperate it but it's just it seems to me like there's a there's an issue because it's not equitable because if other artists can go and do that but then a, a black or global majority cast and artist can't get the same treatment then why would they want to spend their many time and tears for it I think fringe has the unique ability to grow your work 
And I think it's also, you have to do, you don't have to do the tussle of venues. Mm -hmm. You apply and you're not really going to be turned away. You, you, there's just so many venues that you can go somewhere, right? And it is the one place and the one time of year that like you have so many theatre people there that the chance, I guess you're looking at Phoebe Wallerbridge and Fleabag, that could happen. It probably won't, not to be the Debbie Downer, but the likelihood is low, but still there is that dream that, oh, cool. It's the one place where you can probably get most of the regional venues to come and see your work. You meet loads of different people. You get international people. Like I know there's loads of people who come from America to see work, from other parts of Europe. You have TV people there who are scouting. So it is a, it is literally like the annual event for all theatre, TV, art people. So they all do come. Whether they see your show or not, they are there. So that opportunity is there and that possibility is there. And I guess that's like the hope. And there, there is off the back of quite a few shows that either I was supporting or working on, like there's been relationships developed. And I know every time I've gone to Fringe, I've met like the most wonderful people. I've fostered new relationships and friendships and had gone on to work with people or they've given me work or I've hired them or uh, built a relationship with a venue in a regional theatre that I probably wouldn't have done outside of Fringe because I live in London. Um, so like those benefits are unique to Fringe and I guess that's why I keep going back even though I've said I don't want to go next year. Um, and that's why people go because that opportunity is at its like height. Like I think there's a lot to say in the you know having that like huge opportunity versus like mental health and well-being and yeah I wouldn't deter people from going or global majority of people from going I think if you can afford it please go it is the, the biggest opportunity for a theatre person it's, it's especially if you're early to mid career I think it's brilliant I think I would just so this is part of the the fringe society partnership that we're doing is we want people to just be aware of and know what to expect at the very least. And I think that's like a knowledge share that we can do because of our experiences at Fringe previously that we can just be like, this is what to expect. This is how we protect our artists. Just think about how, you can, how you're protecting and like the well-being and mental health of your artists, what you're putting in place. Um, and sorry, and this is what to expect to, this is for other theater makers or these are for audiences. What is this? For theater makers, I think, if, especially if you're going to be there the whole month. But that's another thing. You don't have to go for the whole month. I think loads of people think that you haven't done Fringe if you've not done it for the whole month, but go for a week, two weeks. It's like, that's so fine. And you still have loads of people that you probably wouldn't have got down in London come see your show. But it, yeah, for, for theater makers, I think the biggest thing is like, Yes, it's a massive opportunity. Yes, there's a toll on your mental health and well-being. And it's just knowing how to balance the both. And so I want to wrap up because I realize we're, we're going over time. So just so just wrapping up, what, the partnership with the French Society, what you're trying to do is create awareness with theater companies around Black and global majority actors, performers, and other theater companies. Is that fair to say? Um, yeah, I think we're sort of anti-racism consultants. So we are, we are supporting, but also leading on what 
are the changes that need to be made? What are the changes that can be made? And we are not the be all and end all of the global majority theatre makers. So I'm definitely getting a lot of doing a lot of feedback sessions with people to to hear wider thoughts. I'm not black, so I can't speak for that community. So I'm talking to low and also I'm not East Asian. I can't speak for that community. And there's a huge East Asian theatre making community that goes up to fringe. So definitely speaking to like shows and like groups of people like getting like actors together, producers, directors and that kind of stuff. And people from different global majority communities to hear their thoughts and their feedback on what works. Like also being in mental health practices, like I want to, there should be a guide on that. And it should be like something that a new company starting off doesn't have to recreate for themselves. They can pull it off the internet. Be like, cool. So this is therapy, like POC therapists in Edinburgh, or this is what I should be aware of. This is what I need to be telling my team, et cetera. We're trying to build that safety net and just standard practice well-being at Fringe. That there's all of these events that happen, meet the media and meet venues and stuff. But then when you go, you're one of one person of colour and there's no people of colour in the venues or in the media teams and all of that. So yeah, that's what the partnership is. Great. And then last question, what is one word you would use to describe fringe? Oh, connecting connections. One, yeah, some, something to do with connect, like connecting uh, or like building. Sorry, I've given you many words. That's great. <laughs> great. Oh, actually, I lied. My final question actually is this. Is there anything you wish I asked or should have asked or you want to add? We left this conversation. You're like, oh, I wish I said that. I could go on about all of this for ages. Yes, I'm a producer, but I want to make theatre better because I want my children to see themselves as theatre, be able to see themselves as theatre makers. Like growing up, I was like, I could never be on Disney, let alone I could never be on stage or in a theatre role. So I, yeah, I think I very much weave in it feels weird calling it activism, but just like best practice and learn learning from other people who have really good practice into my into my practice. How was that? Super fun and interesting, right? If you want to learn more about Nouveau Riche, you can go to their website, which is nvrch.com. That's nvrch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. And Sarah has her own website, and that's sarahvigiesproductions.com. There will be a link in the show notes for that as well. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode. Be sure to continue to follow so you know when more come out because there will be more coming out. And if you want to support the show, please give us a five-star rating. Tell someone. Or you can buy me a coffee, which I will use to buy tea, at fringebenefitspod.com. That is it. Thank you so much. And until next time, enjoy the rest of your evening, your morning, your week, whenever you're listening to this. Bye. This episode of Fringe Benefits Edinburgh was produced, edited, and hosted by me, Molly Merwin. Original music, Colette Jonas. 